Hey friends, it's Kelly. Today I am bringing you one of two uh, podcasts on menopause. This is by my friend, Dr. Heather Hirsch, who was trained at the Cleveland Clinic in internal medicine and then went on to do a fellowship. And she did a menopause uh, fellowship, well, a women's health fellowship, actually. I'm calling it a menopause fellowship (laughs) because she's now an expert in menopause and she is now at Harvard. So she has an amazing YouTube channel and she has her own podcast, which is Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. Check her out. It's all about menopause. So menopause happens on average at age 51 in America to American women. And about 20% of women in the American workforce go through menopause every year. That was a statistic I found on the internet because I'm like, this affects a lot of us. So either we are a woman who hopes to live longer than age 50, or we are a man who loves a woman, lives with a woman, has a woman as a sister or a mom, etc, etc. Menopause affects everybody. My One of my favorite people in the hormone health world is Dr. Rachel Rubin, and so I have to give her credit for this, but she says basically if testosterone fell off or testicles fell off a man at age 50, there'd be a national vaccine. And that's what I really feel about menopause and treating menopause. And I was thinking back to my medical school And thinking about what I learned, I don't remember learning a darn thing about menopause. What happened was there was this huge study called the Women's Health Initiative in the early 2000s, and basically it scared the pants off of everybody in this country, and it correlated estrogen with breast cancer, so that to this day, women are still very freaked out about about supplemental hormones, and they really pay the price of the ignorance by not knowing what to do when these symptoms arise. So I have this week and then next week, both with Dr. Heather Hirsch. I broke it up because, as you know, I like small podcasts that can be listened to on your commute. And she is a breath of information and really dispels all the myths about the dangers of estrogen. Here's what we know. We know for women who want to be be sexually active as they age, two of the top reasons that women stop being uh, sexually active is vasomotor symptoms of menopause, so hot flashes, sleep disturbances, and genital urinary symptoms of menopause, so low estrogen in the vulva and the vagina, which it causes decreased blood flow of the clitoris and the labia, so decreased arousal, more difficulty with orgasm, and certainly dryness and pain of the vulva and vagina, so you don't want to have sex. So whether or not you want to do supplemental uh, Uh, estrogen or hormones, your body will be affected because what happens average age 51 is our ovaries start saying it's too expensive to continue to have the ability to be pregnant. We're going to decrease the factory floors here and really decrease the uh, hormones that are produced in our body. So that's estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So enough of just hearing about me. Let's start with Heather Hirsch and then come back next week where we can hear more. Thank you so much for this podcast, you guys. If you can subscribe if you haven't already and leave me a review. We are now at 25,000 listens, which is amazing. We've got to have more women understand their bodies, how their body works, and not be afraid to ask their doctor or their nurse practitioner about what they can do to stay young, healthy, and vital as they age and, and preserve their good sexual function. So I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I love you and I love talking to you guys on Instagram. Um, Here's the other thing. So I'm going to start doing some podcast kind of live recordings like webinars that I'm going to record for the podcast. I'm going to do my first one in March. I'm going to hopefully do them like once a month. So what you do to, in order to get the email of how to get involved with that is go to my website, kellycaspersonmd.com and get on my mailing list because that mailing list is what I'm going to use to send out the webinars that you can come on and talk live or be coached or do questions and answers and I'm going to record it for the podcast. So super fun opportunity coming up. I'm looking forward to it. Enjoy the show. Welcome to You Are Not Broken. 
the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Today, I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Heather Hirsch. She's the host of Women's Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast which you can find on any podcast platform, which is dedicated to uncovering and answering many of the myths and misconceptions surrounding women's health issues. She's a board-certified internal medicine doctor who completed a Women's Health Fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. You can find her on Instagram at hormone.health.doc, and her website is www.heatherhirschmd.com. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks for coming. I'm so excited. We have been working really hard to find the best time to meet up and today is the day. I think it was like pre-COVID when we were actually trying to like, when we talked in the beginning, because we met on an ISHWISH committee, which is the International Society for Women's Sexual Health. And we're on the social media committee, I think. Yeah. And I was like saying, I have a podcast. And you're like, wait, I have a podcast. And we're like, wait, (laughs) let's be on each other's podcast. I think we started a podcast around the same time or something. Yeah. You know, you were before me. And but one of yeah. your podcasts, you have your best friend on there and she's a urologist. So I was like, okay, if your best friend is a urologist, I have to meet you. When we were in med school, you know, as as first years, we we're like, oh, you be a urologist and I'll be a gynecologist and then we'll set our patients up. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Although that it came out a little differently and that was probably a little premature. I was telling I was telling all my friends that they should be surgeons and I realized I was like projecting on them that I should be a surgeon. Because they're all like, no, I don't want to. And I'm like, yeah, but you'd be great. And I'm like, oh, that was me deciding that I should be a surgeon. (laughs) Sorry, friends. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad you did the surgery. And then I get to do all the long-winded menopause and midlife conversations. Totally. So did you know, like, in med school or when did you decide, like, menopause was going to be your niche? So this was not a very straightforward path. So my my best friend and I, as I was mentioning, had you know decided she was going to go into urology and I was going to go into GYN. And so I started my first year as an OBGYN resident. But I found that unlike you, I didn't have the surgical passion. Like I liked doing some small procedures, but I didn't want to be in the OR all day. And that my passion was really in consulting and being in the clinic. So After a long and hard conversation with myself, I changed career paths and completed internal medicine residency, but then I did a two-year fellowship in women's health at the Cleveland Clinic. And it was there that I actually found my passion for midlife and menopause because I started to see women from all over this country fly into Cleveland, which is also dubbed the mistake on the lake, fly into (laughs) Cleveland to meet with my mentor and, you know, help figure out what was wrong with them. Why were they having these symptoms? What was, what was with these hormone therapy? What was okay? What was not okay? What was safe? What was not? They were hearing so many different things. So that as interested as I was in other various women's health issues like contraception and polycystic ovarian syndrome and, and many, many things, I came out realizing that the area of women's health at the end of our reproductive cycle, the end of our reproductive life is actually where we're missing the most uh, education, awareness, research. And I just couldn't sit back watching any longer. And, and it has just been a phenomenal career to have because I just chat with women 
every day, all day from different walks of life, doing so many things, taking care of children and adults and climbing to the peaks of their careers and walking them through this tumultuous time in their life and coming out on top. It is, it is a blessing. I, I absolutely oh, love it. Oh my gosh, they're so lucky. I, I didn't mention you're on the East Coast. And that's right. Yeah, I'm on the West Coast. So my West Coast people would have to fly a long way. But you're up in Boston, right? I am. I started my career at, after I graduated fellowship, I was at Ohio State. So I was in the Midwest for a couple years doing a mixture of consultative menopause and some internal medicine. Then I moved to the East Coast and now I'm at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and I have a consultative menopause and midlife practice. So I don't do any internal medicine, uh, primary care anymore, but certainly I think actually having that background has been so helpful so they can help women with their chronic disease management at the same time as I'm helping them with uh, their menopause and midlife. So that was a long-winded answer to say, I'm in Boston. (laughs) That's awesome. Why do you think our society, I mean, we've been living past age 50 for a little bit, not long, maybe like a hundred some years, right? But why do you think it's just this big mystery? Why do people just not even know what hit them when it happens to 50% of the population? Right. You know, I think there's three big reasons. And this question has been brought to me in so many various different ways and by not only clinicians, but, you know, my, my, my patients and laywomen. So to break down those three big reasons, I think that first, society is bombarded with misinformation about menopause. And that comes from the media, that comes from uh, TV shows, you know, popular culture. It comes from uh, clinicians. It comes from all different places. Second, I think that healthcare provider education is really lacking. And when your doctor doesn't know, how are you supposed to know? And then women do essentially their own deep dive into the scary world of Google, often at one or two in the morning. And then third, you know, menopause is still sort of socially charged. And I always say to my patients, if you didn't think science was political before 2020, now you know. And women's health is political and especially uh, women's uh, midlife and menopause is is actually still political. And it affects the way menopause is perceived by each other, by friends, by family members, by physicians and et cetera. So, you know, essentially it's a culmination of a lot of societal myths and misconventions and that there's just a lack of education among healthcare providers and it just snowballs together. Totally, totally. I think the most typical symptom women know about menopause and they just think this is all menopause is, is the hot flashes. Right. And then they're like, what do you mean there's other things? Right. And we do them such a misservice when they don't know that a lot of other very disruptive symptoms can be related to menopause. And it's a reason that actually women's care, the the economics of women's healthcare at midlife it actually uh, goes through so much of our healthcare because it's very common that they start to uh, gain weight or feel anxious and can't sleep. And then they see the internist and they see their gynecologist and then a sleep doctor, then an endocrinologist, and then a psychologist when actually they could all be from one thing, which is menopause. Now, that's a simplistic view and certainly it's so multifactorial. But when I say, yes, this symptom could be related to menopause, often things that are not typically thought of as menopause, for example, benign positional vertigo or um, 
mood disorders or mood changes, hair loss and hair thinning, weight gain, uh, and actually the development of chronic diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. Could they all be related to menopause? Well, there's a huge physiologic change at menopause when we lose our estrogen, when we lose our sex hormones, that certainly can be, a, you know, these symptoms can be attributed to menopause that's much more than just a hot flesh. And I haven't even touched on these sexual health changes, right? Vaginal changes, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, brain fog, memory loss. Uh, a lot of my patients come to me and think they have early dementia and it's menopause. Oh my gosh. I know. I feel like we just need to have this big public service announcement because they, and, <laughs> and the other thing I think that contributes to women's fear of even getting anything done is the society's like four letter word, which is estrogen. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. are, I, I mean, I see people all the time. I saw a lady very recently who was just so scared of estrogen that she didn't ever want to try vaginal estrogen for her severe dryness, pain with sex, UTIs. And she'd been offered it three years ago. But then had to come and see me. And I was like, listen, you're suffering. And, and es- just local estrogen is such an impressive treatment for what your condition. We've got to get you over this fear. And they can't even kind of dig out where the fear came from. It's just like a fact. Can you talk mm-hmm. about how, how we've kind of scared everybody on estrogen in our in our society? Yes. So again, a lot of science is political. And Uh, unfortunately, research and science can also be political. Now, I want to take your listeners back to the one and the only study that most people know about menopause, and it's surely not the only one, which is the Women's Health Initiative. Now, I get asked in, in interviews all the time about the Women's Health Initiative, and it was actually a really good study. It's just that the outcomes that they were seeking do not match the typical phenotype of someone who is who is seeking uh, care. And there were just some nuances in the study design that at the time made sense, but the way we apply it to today's women does not make sense. So for example, you know, Essentially, the women's health study uh, came out uh, start 90s and it ended abruptly in the early 2000s. And it ended abruptly due to an apparent increased risk of breast cancer in the estrogen plus progesterone arm. And so the study just stopped. And really, since then, the use of hormone therapy plummeted and this idea became deeply rooted that estrogen is dangerous and harmful, despite tons of evidence that we have to the contrary, of which I could take up endless hours discussing with you. But I know your listeners don't have that much time and also may not be that interested in all these details. But essentially, that's sort of what started the ball on science being political. And that really scared a lot of physicians and healthcare providers from prescribing estrogen. So the use of estrogen just sharply declined in the early 2000s. Now, in the early 2000s, I wasn't a practicing physician. I was actually in college. So I wasn't, you know, in this sphere in that time, but we can certainly still two decades later see the results of that, just like your patient experience. There's so much more data after that that 
it is such a it's 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 a complex but overall a, a lot of what i do in my office with my patients who are thinking about hormone therapy is myth bust and really get into the safety and efficacy of hormone replacement therapy so i think that's where this idea started and unfortunately again there's multiple studies really demonstrating that the breast effects are really null and in women who take estrogen only actually have free reductions, look at my thumbs, reductions <laughs> in breast cancer who take estrogen alone. That means, i.e., if you've had a hysterectomy and, and so many beneficial effects to estrogen, especially when taken within 10 years of menopause. And I'm going to end on that last point here, which is that when the WHI did post-talk analysis and what that means is Essentially, they looked at the data years later and kind of tried to garnish more information from this whopping amount of information. What they realized is that they they included this huge group of mostly asymptomatic women in the WHI from ages 50 to almost 80. But in the women who are within uh, 10 years of menopause, they actually had very significant and positive effects from estrogen, including decreasing all-cause mortality, decreasing heart disease, improvement in bone health, improvement in brain and vaginal health, and then a clear improvement in their quality of lives. It stopped hot flashes. And these women tend to work longer and retired less often because they felt well and they weren't going to see eight different doctors. So it's a mouthful. And I hope I didn't lose anyone in that explanation for that simple question you asked me. But the reason that there is this fear of estrogen, I think, stems from that and has really only been fueled by uh, the media and other sort of political or just erroneous agendas. I love it. I love it. I think we have to, I mean, we have to do our part and I think it's going to be a long time, but I think it's, you know, generations telling like, oh, I had breast cancer, so you can't be on hormones where there's really no data. And the data actually suggests that estrogen can be protective. There's some data that testosterone can be protective against breast cancer as well. And I think the other thing that women don't, you know, I'm not even a statistician, but it's like most breast cancer is actually very treatable and very survivable at this point too. So it's kind of like we're sacrificing all these health benefits for something that is very feared, but is actually quite treatable in this day and age. You nailed it. You nailed it right there. And when I'm discussing that fear, especially on the breast cancer issue, I, I do sort of say this the same thing. There's, there's so many different ways to look at it. I say, look, the majority of women who do get breast cancer are not on hormone therapy. So if you're suffering this much and you don't take this treatment, you never get breast cancer. You know, there was no preventative effects. But we also actually know, and this is the most interesting thing that came out of the long-term WHI data, is that women who did take hormone therapy who unfortunately were diagnosed with breast cancer actually died less than the women who got breast cancer and weren't on hormone therapy. And so certainly you're right. Uh, I believe it's like 93 or 94% of early stage breast cancer is preventable. And um, while incidence is one measure, mortality or actually passing away from breast cancer is another measure and arguably more important, right? And so there's lots of data to show that actually for women who do get breast cancer, they actually do live longer. They outlive their counterparts who don't take hormones. So, I mean, there's just a million ways to dissect it. Totally. You're absolutely right. And the way the world currently is, is breast cancer is 
very in, in popular culture is, is, is always just is so talked about. And, you know, it's a symbol of our femininity. Of course, I don't want any of my patients to ever to develop breast cancer, but certainly we think about the leading cause of death in women is by and far heart disease. And totally. You know, a lot of times we talk about, okay, there's this risk if you take this hormone therapy, this theoretical risk, right? But what are the risks if you stay like this? What are the risks if you don't do this, if you don't try this treatment? Totally. The other thing I like to, to when, when, when women bring their fear of breast cancer in is to talk about the real risks of developing breast cancer as one glass of alcohol a day is way more of a risk and obesity and lack of exercise. And so it's always, it's always nice to bring that up to be like, if you truly have this massive fear of breast cancer, there are some other things you can do to decrease your risk. And a lot of times they're already assuming that risk, right? But the idea that's ingrained is, but if I take this estrogen, that's going to give me breast cancer. And I don't blame my patients. It's not their fault. It's a lot of it is just the, the, the media, the images and the, the things that they read and they see. And so it's not for the lay person to be able to, to understand and consume that and digest it. So I don't blame them. So if anyone's listening and they think, oh, gee, that's me too. I absolutely understand. But you're right. I think as physicians and clinicians, our role is to make that make sense in their day-to-day lives. Totally. So, you know, I like not to oversimplify, but I think especially with hormones, people are so like, well, ask your doctor. Well, ask your doctor. Like it's this big myth or fog that like you cannot understand who's a good candidate for estrogen until you like get behind a closed door or something. But it sounds where I see this going as far as hormone supplementation, is it becoming more and more the norm that women are going to get on hormones? Because we have more and more data showing how incredibly helpful it is to improve our quality of life, bone health, sleep, insulin resistance risk, osteoporosis. Where do you, where do you see hormones going? Oh, that's a great question. You know, certainly the pendulum is sort of swinging and, you know, just kind of like how pediatricians are like, push your baby on their, their back, on their belly, on their back, on their belly, right? The pendulum swings and, you know, people are hearing hormones are bad. Hormones are good. They're bad. They're good. They're bad. Um, but so I would love to see us reach a point where the pendulum is swinging back towards more women being accepting of uh, the use of hormone therapy. And I think the biggest barrier is going to be to make sure our clinicians are educated on the most up-to-date and evidence-based information because so many of them either learned in the early 2000s or learned currently the curriculum still in medical school, you know, is that there is more of a risk to hormone therapy than there are benefits. And I think it's slowly, slowly changing. But I think if we can uh, improve the, the way healthcare providers understand, comprehend, and consult patients, we can slowly change that idea that estrogen is dangerous and more women are starting to see the benefits of hormone therapy. And more women need to just talk to each other, talk to their friends, listen to this podcast, listen to my podcast. We are kind of doing that public service announcement, as you mentioned, because we care so deeply that women have the full information at their fingertips to make the best decision for them. Totally. I, and I, I never, I always hate anecdotal evidence, but I think stories, especially on podcasts are really good, right? So I saw this lady, she came in with her husband, she was 82 or 84 and she came in, she looked fantastic. Her vulvar tissue, her vagina was well estrogenized, looked fantastic. They had an active sex life. And 
you know, she was bright and with it and interactive. And I, I just, I'm at the point in my career now that I can tell. And, and that's way oversimplifying. I, I want to be careful when I say that, but I'm like, what are you, you know, what, what, what meds are you on? And she's like, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, man, like I could just, I could tell it walking in the room. She just looks so vital. And it's like, that's an extreme anecdotal piece of evidence. But it's like, I don't, I think women's assumption is aging poorly is the standard where we can age really well. And a lot of that's lifestyle and diet and exercise, 100%, you've got to still all do that. But it's like, why are we accepting like, oh, here comes the hot flashes. Here's the next 40 years. <laughs> you know, I I agree. My, my mentor said this statement once, so I can't claim it as my own, but she said, well, menopause is natural, but so is childbirth and so is death but we still help you through those, right? And not everyone needs help, but the majority of people do. And there is viable, safe, and effective options. And it's not to say that we don't, I also certainly believe, and, and I'm sure you do too, that aging gracefully is, is wonderful. But, you know, it doesn't always have to mean there's one extreme or the other. You know, don't do anything at all or, you know, to the other extreme, uh, people do do lots of things to keep themselves looking young and, and et cetera. But the use of hormone therapy is a nice intermediate measure, particularly, particularly, if you are having symptoms, because the majority of symptoms last five to 10 years, and they are going to also help with your cardiovascular disease, with your bones, your brain, the vagina. And while it's not FDA approved, but hair, skin, and nails are also, you know, get positive effects from really low doses of estrogen, which, you know, I should really say postmenopausal doses of estrogen are really, really low, but have really, really big effects. You guys, that went by so fast. I love Dr. Heather Hirsch. So come by next week. We're going to learn more about menopause, know if it's an option for you, and know how to ask your doctor if it's right for you. I love you so much. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for leaving me a review, and I'll see you next week to talk more about menopause.